Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not leave us in the dark, but you show us yourself, and you show us what you intend to do. We thank you that you have sent your Son, that we might know you truly. We might know your heart, your character. We might know that you are full of grace and truth, that you love us simply because you love us, not because of anything we can do. We pray, Heavenly Father, that the good news of your work in our midst through Christ and now by your Spirit would be inspiring to us and would be motivating to us as we live our lives. We pray that you would begin a good work in this congregation. You'd begin that work in, in my heart and in, in each of our lives and in our families that would spill over to the church and spill over to our city and spill over to our world and that you would bring your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Do this for your glory and we will give you praise. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as was announced at the beginning of the service, the, the new mission, vision, and values for First Presbyterian Church will be presented to you during a congregational meeting immediately following this service. The session has been working on this for over a year and a half now, and the final product represents the collaborative work of all the elders. This is not my mission, vision, and values for the church, but the, uh, but the mission, vision, values of the elders that you have elected to lead and govern this body of believers. I was certainly involved in the process, but my voice was not the only one. And I feel it necessary to say that because for the next three weeks, I'm going to devote a, a brief sermon series to the mission, vision, and values that this session has created. I'm representing the work of a much larger group here. I hope to provide in this three weeks the scriptural and theological support that undergirds and is to some extent assumed in the mission, vision, and values. And we didn't come up with this material out of thin air. It's not the product of our own imagination, but it reflects the truths revealed in scripture, which we believe to be the authority for all of life and faith. It's a difficult task to provide the scriptural and theological support for this final product. Not because there isn't support, but quite the opposite. There's an abundance of support. And I could easily preach three sermons on the mission statement alone. So here's what I've decided to do these three weeks. I'm going to preach on our mission statement this morning, and then devote the next two Sundays to our vision statement. I'm not going to preach on the values, not because they aren't important, they're incredibly important, but because they are largely descriptive of who we are at present and who we want to continue to be. When you hear the values, there should be nothing that's surprising in them. You should hear them and say to yourself, yeah, that sounds about right. That's who we are. But the vision statement is aspirational. It should feel like a bit of a stretch from where we presently are to where we want to be. So they merit a longer look. This morning, therefore, is the mission statement, and the next two Sundays, I will preach on our vision statements. 
And now by this point, you're saying to yourself that this guy keeps talking about something I've never even seen. And it's hard to follow all this in the abstract, which is understandable. So if you would turn to the front cover of your bulletin, you will see that the mission statement is printed on the front cover there for you. It will be printed for perpetuity on the front cover. Turn now, and I'll read it aloud for you. Our mission at First Presbyterian Church is to glorify God by participating with him in the transformation of our lives, the community of believers, and of our worlds. It's the first time you're seeing it, so I'll read it again. Our mission at First Presbyterian Church is to glorify God by participating with him in the transformation of our lives, the community of believers, and of our worlds. And there are many scriptural texts that one could choose to support this mission statement. Indeed, you can hear echoes of, of several passages in the wording we chose. Like I said, I could preach three sermons on the mission statement alone. But being forced to choose only one passage for support, I have settled on Revelation 21 and the vision it contains of God's plan for the end of time. I have chosen this passage of scripture because it contains an image that captures the, the nature and extent of God's transformative work that we are saying it's our mission to participate in. And that image is a marriage, a union, not of two people, but of two places, of heaven and earth. We know only an earth that is, that is fading away and unruly, this great chasm between heaven and earth. Occasionally we'll get a glimpse of heaven on earth, and we'll even use that language to describe the experience. It was like heaven on earth, we'll say. Indeed, there are some places that feel almost Edenic in their overlap of heaven and earth. They're called thin places, because that chasm between heaven and earth appears to have been worn thin. Siloam Springs is not one of them yet. It's our mission to change that. In Revelation 21, we see that it's God's divine plan to wed heaven and earth as one. A new heavens and a new earth are coming down from God together as one. And it will be a habitat that God will occupy with his people. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away and all things have been made new. This is not an act of replacement, but an act of completion, of fulfillment, an act of transformation. Everything unfinished in our present world will be completed. Everything lost, recovered. Everything dreamed of, will be made reality. All will be just and right. In his book, Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller summarizes a lesser-known work by the author J.R.R. Tolkien. You'll likely know Tolkien as the author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. They are books so good that you'll want to ignore Jake Stratman's advice to watch the movie first. Apparently, while Tolkien was struggling to compete his, complete his now-famous trilogy, he wrote a short story called Leaf by Niggle, 
It is the story of a painter named Niggle, who, as Keller explains, had gotten in his mind the picture of a leaf, and then that of a whole tree. And then in his imagination, behind the tree, a country began to open out. And there were glimpses of a forest marching over the land and of mountains tipped with snow. Now Niggle lost interest in all his other pictures, and in order to accommodate his vision, he laid out a canvas so large he needed a ladder. But there are three facts about Niggle that are important to know. The first is that he was dying. And his disease had progressed so that his death was imminent. The second is that he was a perfectionist. And the third is that he had a pesky neighbor named Parrish, who was always interrupting Niggle to ask for his assistance with something or another which Niggle obliged. And all of these things together meant that Niggle never finished his painting, and he died while it was still only a picture in his imagination. What he was able to finish, however, in the time that he had left on earth, was a single leaf, which was impressive on its own, and it even hung in a local museum for some time before being forgotten altogether. But when Niggle arrives on the outskirts of heaven, he happened to notice something that filled him with great excitement. Before him, stood the tree, his tree, finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and yet had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. And Keller explains the significance of this story when he writes, the world before death in his old country had forgotten Niggle almost completely, and there his work had ended unfinished and helpful to only a very few. But in his new country, the permanently real world, he finds that his tree, in full detail and finished, was not just a fancy of his that had died with him, no, it was indeed part of the true reality that would live and be enjoyed forever. Niggle was assured that the tree he had felt and guessed was a true part of creation. And that even the small bit of it he had unveiled the people on earth had been a vision of the true. What Keller is saying is that whatever work we are able to do here in Salem Springs, even if it is incomplete and unfinished whenever we die, Still, it will give people a taste of the enduring kingdom of God, a glimpse of heaven, a taste of what is true. And one day, when heaven and earth are wed, our work will be brought to completion and we'll lift our hands and declare, it's a gift. It's a gift. This is God's plan for the end of time transformation of earth with all of our incomplete work by marrying it with heaven. Therefore, we, the end of all things is remarkably physical. It's remarkably so because Christians, particularly evangelical ones, have neglected the physical nature of God's salvation. We have invested in the salvation of souls so that we can escape this world 
fly away on that one glad morning, as the old hymn goes. But abandoning this earth is not God's plan. He intends to transform it, which consists in the salvation of souls, absolutely, but is so much more than that. This vision requires individuals redeemed through the grace of Jesus Christ to invest in the ongoing transformation of our world, our city, the church, and even themselves. It's a work that will go unfinished until the day that Revelation 21 envisions. But God will bring our work to completion in the, remove, in the renewal and transformation of all things. It is, as N.T. Wright points out, the final answer to the Lord's prayer that God's kingdom will come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Revelation 21 is so much more than just a, a vision of the future, of what will be, of the ending that God has planned for his story of redemption. Revelation 21 is also an implicit invitation to get started now, in the middle of the story. I think of it, as I said in my children's sermon, like a puzzle made of millions of pieces to which God has given us in Revelation 21, the box, so we can see the picture that all these pieces are supposed to come together to create. You have the picture, which is exhilarating in its potential and beauty, God wiping tears from your eyes. And you have the pieces scattered before you in the brokenness of our lives the brokenness of marriages, the brokenness of our city, our country, our world. Do you really need more of an explicit invitation to get started? You have the, the potential opportunity when the picture's all put together to point out the section that you worked on now come to life in the context of a complete picture. I, I don't know if I'm alone in this experience, but whenever I've worked on a puzzle, particularly a, a challenging one, that's finally finished. My eyes, as I look at it, tend to float to the section I completed. I, I may even point it out to someone who wasn't there during the act of putting it together and say, I worked on that face there, or whatever it may be. God is giving you the opportunity for joy and pride, eternal joy and pride in the work that you have done in this, work, in this world that will truly last forever. And in case you need more than an implicit invitation, then consider this command from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, where he commands the Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling before explaining that it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, your work, work out your salvation, because it's God who's working in you. Your work and God's work are simultaneous. In fact, God works in and through Christians to accomplish his purposes on earth as they are in heaven. Dwelling in Christians is the Holy Spirit who is forming and shaping our will and affections to match God's. So that through our maturation and sanctification, we become instruments in the Redeemer's hands. We become, to use another of Paul's teachings, the body of Jesus Christ on earth. The work of a Christian, the spirit dwelling within us, is 
participatory by its very nature whenever we are fulfilling the will of God. And this is not to say that, that we ever cease to sin. But we can, by God's grace, do those things that are glorifying to Him. And this is the purpose for which not only humanity, but all of creation was created, to give glory to our God, to our Creator. And it's why we begin our mission statement with that preface, to glorify God. If we are living for God's glory, then we will experience the fulfillment and satisfaction we seek when we choose instead to live for our own glory. Now, this is the story told over and over and over again in the Bible. We seek our own glory and reap destruction. We want to be somebody. And so we tear each other apart in the hope that when the dust settles, we'll be on top or somewhere near there. We even tear ourselves to pieces, trying to find the feeling that would settle into our souls if we would only realize that freedom is found in the service and worship of God. The thing that makes our mission distinctly Christian is this preface that we work in order to glorify God. You see, anyone can do good work in this world. You don't have to believe in the triune God of the Bible to feed the poor or give shelter to the homeless. And God may be pleased with that work because it means the poor are fed. The homeless have a place to rest their weary heads, but it's not truly glorifying to him. Only that work which is done in joyful response to his grace is glorifying to God. And only Christians can offer such work because we seek nothing in return. We have already received the greatest gift given to humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. He freely offers to us forgiveness and redemption, freedom from our slavery to sin. We did not earn it, but received it as if a gift. And so we are filled up with such a wealth of riches and security that we can give without seeking anything in return. Not even a line on our resume or the good feeling of having helped someone. We need no one to take notice of us because God has already taken notice of us in Christ. And work that flows out of that freedom and joy is truly glorifying to God. Everyone okay? So God is inviting us in response to the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ to participate with him in the transformation of the world. It's a work he will bring to completion at the end of time. But it's also a work he has given us the opportunity to start in the middle of the story. But Revelation 21, I admit, offers a vision so grand that it's intimidating and overwhelming in its scope. God's calling you to transform the world. No big deal, right? Where does one begin? You begin where you have the greatest control, with yourself, with your families. There's a hymn based on the text of Psalm 139 that is at its heart a prayer. Search me, O God, is how it begins, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, know my thoughts, I pray. But in the last verse, there's a 
specific prayer to the Holy Spirit, and it goes like this. O Holy Ghost, revival comes from thee. Send a revival. Start the work in me. Start the work in me. That's where this transformation of all things begins. In your hearts and in your homes. And from there, as we reflect in our mission statement, it will spill over to the community of believers and into our world. But if we are frantic with our busyness, unavailable, or unable to be present with one another because we've said yes to far too many things, we're not even communing with God through prayer and scripture, and we will either fail to be an instrument of transformation or, which is worse, transform everything around us, only to discover in the end that we ourselves are lost. Siloam Springs may have once held the record for the most churches per capita. Christianity may be the dominant religion in our city, and yet our city is still not a thin place, a place where heaven and earth have grown so close that their difference is almost indistinguishable. We want to see that change. We will all probably die with that hope still in our hearts and minds. But, but along the way, we will have produced something, a single leaf even, that will point people to what is true and give them a taste of glory. I hope you will join in this mission and that God may be glorified in us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.